focused even by believers just how important the resurrection of Christ is to the Christian hope of eternal life. Yearly, during Holy Week, everywhere across our country and throughout the world, emphasis is given to the death of Christ on the cross for sinners. In Ontario, Canada, one year, uh, I preached a Good Friday message at one of the Sovereign Graces churches there. And the entire country shut down all commercial enterprise to celebrate Good Friday. That means, by law, Walmart, Kmart, the grocery stores, the manufacturers, and every other enterprise must close. And they did, with the exception of two things. Grocery store, or not grocery stores, but um, gas stations and restaurants were left open. I thought that amusing. Well, we got to feed our body and we got to feed our cars, so we'll leave those stores open. But everything else was closed for Good Friday. And all of this to remember and to celebrate the crucifixion of Jesus and thus the atonement of his personal sacrifice. But isn't it also true that we in our thinking and in our discussion reflect more on the cross of Jesus than on the open tomb? It is not the cross is not, rather, the cross central in most people's thinking when contemplating salvation from sin. We hear statements like, well, Jesus died to save his people from the consequences of their sin. But we seldom hear the equally true statement, Jesus was raised to life for our salvation. Maybe this emphasis has to do with the truth that Jesus himself inaugurated an ordinance, the Lord's Supper, specifically designed to make us reflect upon his death. That, that could be true. Although, resurrection is implied in that ordinance. Let me read it for you. Paul tells us, whenever you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. Implication, he's alive, he's in heaven, he's going to come back. There's a coming back day. As well as uh, this death on the cross. When you think about it, the gospel is about life. As well as about death. It is a gospel about an open tomb as well as about a rugged cross. It's a gospel of anticipation and joy as well as a gospel of sorrow and retrospect. It's a gospel for the present, but it's also a gospel for the future, as well as a gospel of the past. It's with these things in mind that I direct our thoughts to the opening remarks of Paul's famous treatise on resurrection. That's 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to know all about resurrection or the importance of it, 1 Corinthians 15 is your text. I'm going to deal with the first few uh, verses, but we read for our meditation reading some of the latter verses as well that gets into the specifics. Well, how does this apply as we die and our bodies buried and how, how when we're resurrected do we come forth and so forth. But we want to look at three important considerations concerning Jesus' resurrection. Number one, the place of resurrection in the gospel message. Number two, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection, and number three, the importance of resurrection for our daily lives as believers. So then firstly, the place 
a resurrection in the gospel message. These are found in the first four verses. And what we learn here is that the doctrine of resurrection was part and parcel to the gospel which Paul preached. We don't always get that everywhere when we read in Acts, his preaching and so forth, but it's there. It might be a statement or something. He got in trouble in Acts 17 uh, preaching to the Athenians because he was preaching on the resurrection. And their idea of God wasn't anything like that. So they took him to the Areopagus, to Mars Hill, and you know they put him on the hot seat and drilled him on regards to his strange teaching. Well, his strange teaching had to do with Jesus and the resurrection. But in our text, verse 1, linked with verse 2, demonstrates the connection between the gospel Paul preached and the word of God on which the Corinthian believers took their stand. Notice, the gospel I preach to you, verse 1. And then in verse 2, the word I preach to you. So what was this gospel or word from God which the Corinthians heard, believed in, and upon which they took their stand? Well, verse 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's what was preached. And it's evident that the gospel concerns more than the cross of Christ. It is more than a message of redemption. It is more than the story of atonement. The gospel incorporates these things, to be sure, but it also includes the glorious truth of victory over death, victory over the grave. It's the triumph of the open tomb that is part of the gospel. There's no suggestion here that resurrection is somehow inferior to the death and burial of Christ. Now, some might observe, well, you know, resurrection is listed last in this list of three. That's true, but that does not denote inferiority, but it's to denote propriety. There can be no resurrection unless there's first a death and then a burial, and thirdly, then, you get resurrection. That's why resurrection is number three. Observe here from verse 2 that this gospel of resurrection preached by Paul and believed on by the Corinthians was the gospel by which people, he says, are saved. Are saved. The gospel which saves is the gospel of resurrection as well as the gospel of crucifixion. This makes the resurrection more than an afterthought, doesn't it? Rather, it makes resurrection central to salvation, not kind of incidental. The resurrection then is part and parcel of the good news of the gospel. And I would go so far as to say that without the resurrection, the gospel loses its good news status. I want you to think about that. And this is essentially what Paul says in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, okay, so he comes over to their idea, some of the false teachers were saying it at Corinth, so he's going to come over to that side just for a minute to, for the sake of argument. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Think about that. That is very serious. You want to get rid of res resurrection? Hmm. You better rethink that. Because if that's the case, you're still in your sins. 
There's been no victory over that last enemy of our soul, which is death. Now, secondly, all the truths which comprise the gospel occurred, says Paul, according to the scriptures. Verse 3, verse 4. That little phrase has a huge meaning. Some have ignored it altogether and in doing so have glossed over the supreme authority for these teachings, namely God himself and what he has declared. You say, well, I believe the Bible was uh, written by men and contains the thoughts of men. Well, you're entitled to be ignorant. You're entitled to be wrong. You can be wrong if you choose to. But as we shall see shortly, one of the men to whom the risen Christ appeared was Peter, Verse 5, and this Peter writes in his letter, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1 verse 21. So you may think the Scriptures just came from men writing things down. But Peter says, uh-uh, that wasn't so. No prophecy. There's not, a, there's not a word in the book that came from the guy that wrote, you know, put the, the autography, the, uh, the script scribing. There's not a word in the book that came from his will or his thoughts. It's all from God. John 4, 24 states, God is spirit, and that's how they were conducted to the truth. In the case of Peter himself, he admits about Jesus Listen to this. Peter speaking. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. 2 Peter 1, verse 16 through 18. So what's he saying here? He's saying we apostles were eyewitnesses of this Christ and his miraculous workings. And we were ear witnesses of God's testimony concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Are these not the most reliable sources of what happened in any search for truth? An eyewitness account, an earwitness account. I'm amazed. We're, we still function that way. We watch the news and they tell you about a news story. What, what do they do? They, they try to get a video of what happened. There's a, there's a fire broke out on, in this bus along the highway and so forth. And it was full of children, so forth. It got a video there, and everybody can see the kids escaping the bus, and so on. And then you'll have, then they get out there in the crowd that surrounds the bus with, the, with their microphone. Oh yeah, I was here, and I saw that. And yeah, it looked to me like there was something leaking out of the bottom of the bus, and then it just caught on fire. Says a witness. We still work that way. With all of our gadgetry, we look for eyewitness and earwitness accounts. Well, we don't always have that with the histories. What about all those philosophies that we were taught in school? What about all of that history that we were taught in school? Often it's just the inventions of men. 
The scripture is the word of God about his son. Jesus, it's about Jesus and the events which his disciples saw and heard in the three years that they were with him. Now they were just as amazed, just as amazed, just as dumbfounded, just as taken aback by the miracles and teachings of Jesus as we are in our day. But they were there, that's the point. They saw these things firsthand. And we would do well to believe their history, which we have in the book. Paul states in our text that these three doctrines, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, is what he received, he says, and passed on. That is, he didn't invent these things. He says these things are of first importance. Namely, that Christ died, was buried, rose from the dead, just as the scriptures had foretold would happen. No other religion in the world presents us with a Savior who meets these three works of redemption. A substitute to stand in and pay the penalty of sin for all who believe. One who truly died and was buried, succumbing to the penalty of death. The wages of sin is death. And then raised on the third day, no longer held bound by the grave, but victorious over the grave. This is why Peter, in explaining how the lame man was healed by he and John, said this, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Salvation, he goes on, is found in no one else, for there's no other name. Not Allah, not Mohammed, not Hare Krishna, not Buddha, not Confucius, not Mother Mary, not Joseph Smith of the Mormons, not any prophet of the past, not any guru of the present, not even the Jesus you think is still dead. No other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's the resurrected and living Christ that's the hope of sinners. Acts 4, verse 10 and following. I could say it this way, the Bible knows of only one Savior, and it is Jesus, the Christ, God's anointed one and only Son. That is the gospel, the good news of the gospel. Now consider with me these three doctrines, all documented in Scripture. Number one, Christ died for our sins, says Paul. Christ died for. Many religious leaders have died throughout history. Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, more recent days, Joseph Smith, Jim Jones, David Koresh. So there's nothing, there's nothing unusual about that. Paul does not simply say, Jesus died. He doesn't say that. But that he died for our sins according to the scriptures. This then is not just death as it comes to all men, nor is it a statement about martyrdom, which we hear a lot about today. A man dying for a cause. The suicide bombers whose deaths are designed to take lives, not give lives or save lives. So Jesus' death has benefits which accrue to those whom Jesus represents. Paul tells us he died for our 
sins. The concept of substitution is dominant. Jesus dies for others. The concept of redemption is also present. He dies for our sins. A payment is being made to God to placate God's wrath upon us for our sin, where God has said the wages of sin is death. And since we're all sinners and all fall short of the glory of God, then we have that great debt that needs to be paid. Well, the question comes, who constitutes the hour, O-U-R, for whom Christ died? In context, it would be the Corinthians plus Paul. He's using the word hour. But is that all? Certainly more is intended because Paul take, talks about this part of the gospel message he preached everywhere, verse 1, a gospel to be received and upon which people are to take their stand, verse 1, a gospel that issues in people being saved if they believe, verse 2. Well, he's certainly talking about more people than the Corinthians and himself. Jesus did not just die for the population of Corinth, plus Paul, but for all believers who receive and respond in faith to the gospel message. This is not, this is not wholesale, indiscriminate, universal atonement, as though all men were saved just because Jesus died. No, this is a redemption applicable to those only who receive it, believe it, and take their stand upon it. You ever wonder why, uh, if the gospel is still being preached in America, why aren't all people Christians? Because they don't believe it, they don't receive it, they don't take their stand upon it. Now, some reading a text like this would be say something like, well, we can say that Jesus died for all men, but the benefits are only applied to those who believe. I don't think they've thought this out very well, but that's what is being said. He died for all men, but the benefits of his death only apply to those who believe it. That's not a biblically accurate description of atonement. The salvation of God is not accidental. It's on purpose, as is evident from specific prophecies which explain the recipients of Jesus' work. It's the difference between believing that Christ died simply, can I say it this way, simply to provide salvation for people and believing that Christ actually procured salvation for people. And that distinction is very important. Paul tells us Christ died for our sins. He actually paid for sins. Sins of real people with real sins. There's no such thing as blood spilt, but unapplied. Just uh, sitting out there in the spiritual space waiting to be tapped into. If the atonement, now get this, if the atonement is universal, then salvation will be universal. And there are universalists that actually teach that. If Christ died, paid 
the debt for everybody's sin in the world, so everybody in the world is going to be saved. And they deny another truth of Scripture, the fact of judgment and hellfire. But the Bible only attributes salvation to those who repent and believe and to none else. What's more, the Bible is clear that those for whom Christ died will be saved. Look at John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me, they will come to me. So we could shorten it up a little bit, make the point. All that the Father gives will come. That's very important. I like to shorten verses once in a while. Because sometimes the adjectives and so on, and they're in the text. I'm not denying that. But to make the point for my beady little brain, I want to see the punchline. And it's this. All that the Father gives will come. All will come. Some may kick. Some may protest. Some may run the other way. But the Father has a long arm. He can grab them by the nape of the neck and pull them back. All that the Father gives, they're going to come. They're going to come. And then verse 39, here's what he says. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he gives me. Wow. All that he gives me are going to come, and of all that, that, that he gives me, I'm not going to lose any. Very powerful statements. Listen to Jesus' words to the Jewish leaders who opposed him. Here's what he said. You are not my sheep because you do not believe in me. Is that what he said? You are not my sheep because you do not believe. No, no, that's not what he said. That's the way we read it. But what he said was this. You do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. and They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Now, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Think about it. Which comes first, belief, then becoming a sheep, or becoming a sheep, and then belief? Well, Jesus explains that it's the latter. Our faith is part of being a sheep of Christ by his miracle and grace. Do you have to believe to be a Christian? Do you have to repent? Yeah. Well, the natural heart doesn't love God, doesn't, does love its sin. Now, is it going to give up sin and believe in Christ? It's going to demand holiness in our life? No. So we've got to get a nature that will agree to love this person that is unlovable to us. We give up the sin that which we do love. Jesus explains that it is the latter. Our faith is part of being sheep of Christ by his miracle of grace. And it's for the sheep that Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10 verse 15. Clear. None of this, then, is left to chance or the fickle finger of fate. No, no. God the Father has a people. He gives his Son to die for them. He gives these people to his Son to save and to keep and to grant eternal life. And yeah, the promise of resurrection. All God doing his wonderful work on us rebellious 
fist in the face sinners. Let me give you some scriptures on this. I don't want you to think I'm making this up. Isaiah 53. We love Isaiah 53. It's the Old Testament prophecy concerning Christ and his suffering. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging we are healed. Okay, it's our, 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 we. And the question comes... Who are the hour? Who are the we being referenced here? Say, well, you don't know that. Yeah, we do. Verse 8. He was caught off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Well, does the phrase my people mean everyone in the world? Let's read on. Verse 11. As the result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. And he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12. Poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, the thief on the cross and so on. For he bore the sins of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. If the words of scripture mean anything, Isaiah 53 clearly foretells. Jesus as the suffering servant of Jehovah would be sacrificed for those who would become the people of God by repentance and faith. That's not universal atonement. That's particular redemption. Praise God. He, he spend, spends his blood for the many. Now, we're not a little group. I'm going to mention that. But this, this text, Isaiah 53, is prophecy. What about fulfillment? Well, when we come to the New Testament, listen to Jesus. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for everybody in the world. Is that what he says? No. Let me read it. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, verse 28. Paul, writing to the church at Rome, said, He, Jesus, was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised for our justification. Chapter 4, verse 25. Hebrews 9, verse 28. Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear the second time, not to bear sin, to those who eagerly await for salvation. Peter actually quotes Isaiah 53, and applies it to the readers. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds we are healed. 1 Peter 2 verse 24. And then Paul writing to Titus states. Looking for the appearing of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Who gave himself for us. That he might redeem us from every lawless deed. And purify for himself a people. For his own possession. Well, that's what the gospel's doing today. It's what it was doing back 2,000 years ago. It was calling out God's people. It was. And all of these scriptures testify that the death of Christ was to pay the debt of sin for specific people. Not a small group, but for all who, in hearing the gospel, receive it, believe it, and repent of their sins. So atonement is not just 
again, is not just sitting out there in spiritual cyberspace, awaiting people to kind of tap into it. If they will, when they will, no. Jesus had a face, he had a name, he had a unique identity in mind for every person for whom he died. Let me read it for you. It's found in Revelation 17, verse 8. It tells us that the names of those destined for salvation were written, let me read it, in the Lamb's book of life from the creation of the world. Before time began. A name, think about that. A name, a name, a name in the book. A name is a personal mark of identification that belongs only to you. If you were to make reservations at a pretty exclusive restaurant, the first thing the maitre d' would ask, what is your name? Why? Because you are not going to get a table unless you have a reservation with your name on it. Your name identifies who you are. John Smith. That would likely have to have a middle name because there's so many Smiths in the country that zones in on one person or one location. Okay, John Richard Smith of Lapeer. Now we're really narrowing it down, aren't we? God has a book, the book of life, that identifies by name every person for whom Christ died when the final tally is made in the day of judgment, not one person will be missing from the names written. Praise God. Yet I affirm that the Bible affirms there's no color blindness. There's no prejudice with God. Let me read it for you. I looked and behold a great multitude, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes, and peoples and tongues and standing there before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Revelation 7, verse 9. Those for whom Christ died consist of all types of people, all races, all nationalities, both sexes. God calls his people from men, from women, from boys, from girls, of every nationality. The redeemed include black people, white people, male, female, Noble, ignoble, educated, ignorant, backward people, civilized people. God shows no favoritism. Totally impartial. He saves whom he wills, when he wills. And thankfully, he turns none away who call upon him. That's the glory of the gospel. So the first thing is Christ died for our sins. Wonderful. Secondly, Christ was buried for us. Why? I touched on this the other week. Why would Paul mention burial? Well, it serves two purposes. Firstly, burial confirms the finality of death. We bury people whom we know to be devoid of life's breath. I'm just coming back from my father's funeral. And he bought his burial plot at a certain cemetery in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And after the funeral, 
they're going to take his remains and bury them in that particular plot. We bury people whom we know are devoid of life's breath. As long as people are still breathing and their flesh is still warm and alive, we do not bury them. Jesus had a tomb. But it was not the lost tomb of the filmmaker Cameron, whose most notable film was Titanic. Cameron bought into the alleged scientific archaeological opinion of Jewish-born Shmishka Jepikovich, there's a name, who claimed that the names inscribed on bone boxes called ossuaries, Jesus being a common name, by the way, the same name as Joshua or Joseph, so on this bone box, the name Jesus was there. Joseph was written there. Mariana was written there. He says that proves that this is the bone box of the Holy Family. They all died. They were buried in this ossuary. In actuality, that tomb was discovered more than 40 years ago. Thoroughly researched by archaeologists and theologians alike, and all of those experts concluded the following. The family buried in this tomb consisted of ordinary middle-class Jewish family who had, who had money. Secondly, the bones alleged to be those of Jesus of the Bible evidence that that person had not died by crucifixion. Thirdly, the name Mariana is, is different from the name Mary. The location of the tomb, number four, does not match the historical records of the Gospels. And what is more, DNA testing is fruitless without a baseline which, with which to compare it. A hair, a piece of tissue known to belong to Jesus of Nazareth. So all of that quote-unquote scientific stuff, so much gobbledygook. Why the hype? Well, it's nothing more than the ongoing saga of Hollywood trying to cash in on a fictitious Jesus, a fictitious If you want to read about the real burial of Jesus, Isaiah 53, 9 says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Criminal burial ground. We talked about that the other week. Yet it was with a rich man in his death. Isaiah 53, verse 9. The fulfillment of that is Matthew 27, verse 57. Following at evening approach, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. A new tomb never used before, not containing other cadavers. In that place, Jesus was buried, and he was buried because... Now, another reason for Paul mentioning burial was to confirm resurrection. Resurrection is for dead people. And burial presupposes that they are truly dead. All men can do with the dead is bury them. That's the only thing they can do with them. Despite science fiction like Frankenstein and a few. Burial, that is our final farewell. But 
Resurrection is a divine act alone, which death cannot defy when God's power is unleashed. And that's the third truth, that Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The prediction is in Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not abandon me to the grave. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Paul applied this to Jesus when he preached it on Antioch. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to see decay, is stated in these words, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Resurrection was part of the gospel preaching of Paul. And he used Jesus' own example. His own prediction was this, as as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew 12, verse 10. Verse 3 of our text says, He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Thus Christ fulfills prophecy for these three redemptive works necessary to salvation, the atoning death, a genuine burial, and a glorious resurrection. Scriptures converge on this one person in history whom Peter said is the only name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now to this gospel which Paul preached, he adds eyewitnesses' accounts of the resurrection. That's probably because it's the hardest thing to conceive. I have relatives in my home that, you know, this, in my family, that this, this is it. Resurrection is the quintessential miracle of Christ. Coming back from the dead, you don't hear about that every day. And so the skeptics of the gospel attack this point because if they can disallow and make it look silly about resurrection, they can disallow everything else with regard to the gospel. In Acts 13, verse 30, the scripture says, God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses. His witnesses. John wrote, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The historical account on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, when the doors were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, Peace be with you. And he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. John 20, verse 19. The resurrection of Jesus was not kept a private secret. Jesus appeared to many of his followers, to 500 on one occasion, verse 6 of our text. Acts 1, verse 3 tells us, After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. 
So we have the very same men who had walked and talked with Jesus for three years, had learned of him, had been taught by him an additional 40 days by the very one who had been crucified and buried by Jewish authorities, but was now alive. Now you remember on resurrection morning, we talked about that the other week, there was some skepticism because they didn't originally remember, firstly, Jesus' words. <laughs> and then when the women come back and said, well, you know, he appeared to us and he said, go to Galilee and we'll meet you there. And they, oh yeah, well, okay, right, yeah. And Peter and John run to the empty tomb themselves. They got to see this with their own eyes. And they're still skeptical. They're still scratching their head. So they had to be convinced. And Jesus convinced them. And I think we must be prepared to believe these men preponderance of evidence for the living Christ or view them all as a bunch of liars. And I'm not prepared to do that just because I wasn't there with them on that day. That brings us then to the importance of the resurrection. Look at verse 17. It says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's a word that means empty. It's worth zero. Why? Because you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that is, they died trusting in Jesus, they are what? Here's a four-letter word that no one wants to hear. They are lost. Lost. No resurrection. Then they're lost, says Paul. Why? Because dead saviors are no saviors. The word of Jesus for his people is not only the cross, it is also the open and empty tomb. Paul puts it in theology, saying it this way in Romans 6. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. If we died with Christ, we believe that we will live with him. What is this? Well, Paul is describing the representative work of Jesus for his people. I can put it this way. Jesus never acted on his own behalf. From start to finish, he was a representative for his people. He represented them before God as our substitute. His crucifixion meant the death of our old sinful self. Chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him, writes Paul. When Jesus was buried, the believers shared that entrance into the grave. And when Jesus arose, we share that new life. Salvation, can we put it that way, is salvation is not complete apart from resurrection. And yet the critics of the Bible, this is the first thing they want to attack. You really believe in resurrection from the dead? <laughs> That's what they, yeah, they, they think we're a bunch of doofus to believe that. And if you take out this miracle, you, you, you might as well throw all the miracles away. With resurrection comes the power of a new life and the promise of eternal life.
This is why we believers say things to our family members like, well, you know, the old me is gone. Because they'll bring it up. They'll bring it up to you. Or we say, I've changed inside. Or that's not me anymore. And what we are conveying in all of that is that God has made us new from the inside out through Christ's resurrection power. Our thoughts, our speech, our actions, while not sinless, nonetheless evidence a desire and an effect to please God by being holy and righteous as God enables us. We're not the same old sin-loving wicked person. Resurrection power has come to us here and now. And hopefully, by God's grace, they'll begin to see that in us if, we, if we're living out the gospel. They'll say, well, I notice you. You have really cleaned up your language. <laughs> I notice you don't frequent the places that you used to frequent. I notice that you're kind to your wife. Well, you were a bully. That's resurrection power. That's God's power living within us. Let me close by asking, has this life come to you? Has it come to you? The gospel invitation is, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you've got to believe that, you will be saved. Or, it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord and means it <laughs> will be saved. Romans 10. Good news of the gospel is, yeah, it's the cross, but it's also burial, and it's resurrection. And for us as believers, we've gone through that experience of dying with Christ, and now we're living with Christ by His Spirit. And just buried my dad of 100 years. And if funerals are to be a happy place and a time of joy, amen. That's what we had. A lot of people. Well, not a lot. When you're 100 years old, you don't have a lot of um, <laughs> you don't have a lot of your f uh, former church members around. I think we had about a dozen former church members where Dad was a was a member, and they're all in their 90s. But rejoicing that he's absent from the body and present with the Lord. Now that's not pie in the sky stuff. God the Father gave uh, Russell to Jesus a long time ago. And the proof is in the pudding. He lived for Christ. He died in Christ. And was immediately absent from the body, present with the Lord. No purgatory, no waiting on God's mercy. And that's the promise made to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord and means it. Means it. I hope you mean it. I hope you're in the family of God. Let's pray.
And then Jared's going to come. What a wonderful song to sing for us all. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you and praise you for your great goodness to us in the gospel. Yes, the gospel's about the cross. It is. And it's about burial. So that everybody knows that the man taken from the cross was really dead. He wasn't in a swoon. He didn't faint. Roman soldiers certainly knew what they were doing in crucifixion. And they pronounced him dead. Pilate learned he was dead. Yeah, it was early, but he was dead. And then his friends, his disciples buried him. And then there was a resurrection morning three days later. Again, the guards were there and they were scared out of their skin. They fell in dreadful fear, kind of in a comatose state. And they reported what happened to Pilate. But again, the religious leaders stepped in and they said, oh, we can't have that being circulated. Let's, let's, let's come up with a story. Oh, I know. Here's a story. We'll say the disciples came in the night and stole his body away. Yeah, with the Roman guards standing there. How fathomable is that? The truth is, by your grace and by your power, he was raised to life. The chains of death were broken. So the promise to us of eternal life in him is real. Death will not have the last word. Christ will have the last word. We praise you for that. And for your glorious, glorious salvation. We didn't earn it. You gave it. We praise you. Amen. Jared's going to come.